Uh, hey, we're going to be in 1 Kings today, 1 Kings chapter 19. It's going to take me a minute to get there, so no rush, but I want to let you know where we're headed, and I do recommend that you take a look at it in your own Bible this morning. I think it's worth your time every week to bring your Bible with you. Hopefully you know where it is. Hopefully you use it on a regular basis. Uh, but hey, reading it for an hour, one day a week is better than not at all. So if you're not reading it, that's fine. Bring it with you. Maybe you'll find something in it that's interesting that'll hook your attention and you'll get back into it like you want to be. First um, Kings 19, we'll start in verse 1, and we're going to read uh, pretty much the full narrative of the first half of that chapter. So if it's a couple pages, just kind of keep your thumb or your finger there while I talk to you a little bit. I want to catch you up quickly on where we've been, and then we'll come right to the text. Uh, last week, we did our very best to answer the question, how do I follow Jesus? And the short answer from John chapter 15 for us was we abide. That seems to be what Jesus thinks is most important. Now, that's easier said than done. I can use a Christian word like abide with you, and we can all nod, and oh, that's good. Jesus did say to do that, but we probably have no idea what that really looks like. How do I know if I am abiding? How do I start abiding if I'm not? How do I keep abiding if I am? What are the barriers to abiding? So that's the kind of conversation I want to be able to have with you today. Last week, we tried to break abiding down into three objectives. And I talked to you about these at length, so I won't go into detail today. But for the follower of Jesus, following him, abiding in him, looks like belonging to him first, then beholding him on a regular basis, consistently and regularly returning our eyes to Jesus, focusing on him mentally, spiritually. And then finally, the effect of those two things is that we will become like him. But we talked at great length last week about the idea that oftentimes we start with becoming and then along the way, we're almost kind of forced by churches and pastors and preachers and Sunday school teachers to do the beholding and the belonging part. But really, it's the becoming that we aim for. We try to assert our willpower. We try to push ourselves and kind of white-knuckle our way into becoming like Jesus, and it just doesn't get us very far because we haven't started with the grace of Jesus that's belonging to him, and we haven't spent a lot of time just looking at him, just being with him, observing him, spending time with him, and yet that seems to be the recipe that the Bible lays out for us if we would like that end product, that third piece of the puzzle, becoming like Jesus, to become our own reality. The trouble with me telling you that you just need to belong more and behold more and eventually you'll become more like Jesus is that most of us are not very good at abiding in Christ. We don't know how to do it. No one's really showed us how. I think that uh, one of the tragedies maybe of the big generation gap that exists between people in their 40s and people in their 80s, if you study it, it's almost double the social gap that exists every other generation because of the rise of technology, is we just we haven't really paid attention to older people in the church. We haven't really gotten to know them. We haven't asked them, how do you follow Jesus? Maybe we think our way is better than their way. We have some kind of pride that allows us to dismiss their influence but we've just kind of stopped asking people that are further down the road, how did you do it? How did you make it to 85 and still love Jesus the way you did when you confessed him as your savior 78 years ago or however long it was when you were a kid or a young married person or in your middle life? And so we've just lost it. We've lost it in the short term in that sense. We've also kind of lost our way where we've stopped looking into church history to figure out how all these thousands of years worth of saints stayed faithful to Christ, stayed faithful to the movement and the leadership of the spirit of God. And so for people like us who are not amazing at abiding, even if we'd like to be, even if we spend a lot of time trying to be, we need some help. We need something that would provide us with a little more of a framework or maybe more strength or um, not more rules to follow, but some rails that we can get on where even if it doesn't feel like we're making progress, we can trust that if we just continue to stay consistent and focused and disciplined that eventually 
by staying rooted in the grace of Jesus and keeping our eyes on him, the kind of change that we've tried to make in ourselves will eventually come about by way of God's spirit. So this is where we enter into the idea of a spiritual discipline. A discipline, a non-spiritual discipline, any discipline of any kind can be defined as an activity that prepares us indirectly for some activity other than itself. Now that sounds really hard to understand. Here's what I mean. Think of shooting free throws in the gym before or after practice. No opponents, it's not game day. It's just you and a basketball working on your fundamentals, not because you wanna be amazing at making free throws alone in a gym with the lights off somewhere, but because you'd like to sink every free throw that you ever have the chance to take in a game when it matters. Or think of working on your arpeggios on the keyboard or the piano or any instrument. You don't play those things because you want to be really good at having the technical skill to impress a handful of people who even know what the word arpeggio means. You want to train your body and your mind to be able to produce music that people would love. You want to be able to perform, to play something. And so you willingly participate in an activity that isn't the point, but gets you to the place where the thing that is the point can actually happen. That's discipline in general. A spiritual discipline then is something that you and I do together with God. It's cooperative, an activity that we share with God, which prepares us for obedience to God that is born from love for God. So it's indirect. It's something that we participate in, that we engage with, because right now we're not obeying God, and if we are, we're certainly not doing it out of love for him. We're doing it out of compulsion or fear or because somebody's made us feel guilty or because we're ashamed. We want to be people who obey because our love for God is so immense. I think of the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He says it's the love of Christ that controls us, that compels us, that drives us forward, that draws us into obedience. And for many of us, that sounds great, but that's really not the reason that we do most of the obeying that we do. Most of the obeying that we do is rooted in probably growing up in a church where people told us lots of stories about bad guys who did bad things and look how bad their lives went and we don't want that to happen and so we're gonna try to do it God's way and hope that everything works out in the end. Following Jesus is not just taking Jesus' rules and trying to apply them to our lives. It's taking on the way that he did those things. It's wanting to become like him and therefore taking on his perspective, his stance, his attitude, his outlook, his understanding of things. That means that the way that we live our lives is as important as the outputs or the outcomes of those lives themselves. And this is why I feel strongly that for most of us as modern, very online, digitally minded believers, finding a way to integrate spiritual disciplines, cooperative activities with God that lead us to obedience born out of love is the missing piece. It's a key, and it's a key that's existed in church for a really long time, and we've lost it in many ways. We're so busy, we have so little margin, we can't imagine taking on additional Christian tasks. But if you would, that's the argument I wanna make today, I think you stand a really good chance of belonging in a way that you haven't before, of beholding Jesus in a way that doesn't just feel like forcing your way through six songs on a Sunday morning that you'd really rather not sing, but that wants to treasure Christ and out of that treasuring of Christ actually begins to not just do some of the things he said, but become the kind of people who do those things in every area of life. We're talking character change, not just behavior modification. That's our objective today. So we're working through some classic examples of spiritual disciplines. Last week we summarized our intro series, 10 weeks. I tried to do it in 40 minutes and it took me 50, so sorry. But if you think you could preach 10 sermons in 50 minutes, you're welcome to come and try sometime. Just kidding, you guys are really nice to me about it, but I'm sorry I went a little long. Today I'm gonna try to condense a five-week series we did in 2022 about silence and solitude into the remainder of our time this morning. About 30 minutes from now we'll be done.
My commitment to you is to do a good job reviewing where we went. What I can't promise you is that I can preach this in a way that introduces and explains and then defends every point that I'm going to make to the degree that I would like to. I can't do that in one sermon. So if this is new to you, you've never heard this before, or you've only ever heard of spiritual disciplines as kind of this mystical, anti-gospel, legalistic thing, I would encourage you to do one of two things. Either look it up on your own and study, or if you would like to know what I think about it, you're more than welcome to go and find that five-part series from last October and work your way through it. I think it'll be more helpful to you than this review. But for those of us who were there, especially those of us who've tried in the last year to engage with silence and solitude, I want to just fan that flame inside of you again and encourage you to carry on or to maybe reconsider and re-engage with what is, in my opinion, the foundational spiritual discipline in the lives of people who are way too busy. So, if spiritual disciplines are cooperative activity between us and God, then silence and solitude, to me, is the very foundation of following Jesus because it's simply about being with God and then just staying with him. For as long as you can, as often as possible, throughout your day, there's lots of ways to allow this to kind of break in on your schedule, but to find a way to connect with God and stay connected to him, not that he's left you, but we tend to wander and we go to bed and forget that God's real and he's good, and so just finding a way to re-engage, return our eyes to Christ in the morning, and then stay with him throughout the day. So that's where we're headed, and we're going to draw our principles today from the example of a man named Elijah, whose story comes to us in the first chapter, excuse me, the 19th chapter of 1 Kings, beginning in verse 1. Let's read. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done. Okay, three characters right out of the gate. Ahab is king of Israel. His wife's name is Jezebel. Ahab's the king. Jezebel's the queen. Neither of them care at all about what God says or what God wants. Ahab found himself on the throne because his father was the king before him. Ahab didn't do anything to earn the leadership of the people. He didn't have a good character. Never once does he honor God in his entire life. There's a story a couple chapters later where he's so fickle that he demands that a man give him a piece of land. And when the guy won't, Ahab goes to bed and cries for days and days. And his wife comes and sits next to him and says, oh, you poor baby, is something wrong? And they just have everybody's heads cut off. And then they take the land anyway. These are the kinds of people who make these sorts of decisions. Not good folks. A chapter before this, Elijah has gone head to head with Jezebel, who worships a foreign god, not the god of Israel, but a god named Baal, who's sort of the god of all the regions around Israel. And her priests and Elijah have this showdown. It's really dramatic and worth your time. I don't have time to read it to you today. But it ends with all of the priests of Baal being shamed and then being killed, and Jezebel is not happy. She is angry. Ahab delivers word to her, this is verse 1, let's keep reading, including a detailed account of how Elijah killed all of the prophets of Baal with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah and she said this, may the gods judge me severely if by this time tomorrow I do not take your life as you took theirs. Elijah was afraid, I think you would be too, so he got up and he fled for his life to Beersheba in Judah. And he left his servant there, so he had a guy who kind of helped him with stuff, and he said, you stay here, because it's too dangerous to be with me, while Elijah himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. He went, and he sat down there under a shrub or under a tree, a broom bush is what some of your uh, um, passages or your translation of scripture may say. And there he made a cry to Yahweh. He prayed a prayer, and he said, 
I've had enough, so now Yahweh take my life. After all, I'm no better than any of my ancestors. He says, look back at the family tree of the people of Israel. We always rebel against you. Here I am. I can't get it right. I thought I did everything you told me to do, exactly how you said, and still there's this queen hunting me down. So God, would you just kill me so she can't torture me before she kills me? I'm done. I'm over it. I'm through. Life past this point is unimaginable to me. He stretched out there under the bush, and he fell asleep. And suddenly, an angelic messenger touched him and said to him, hey, get up and eat. Eat what? So he looked around, and right there by his head was a cake baking on hot coals and a jug of water. So he ate and he drank, and then he slept some more. Elijah has two big problems, two things that are causing him all this internal chaos. If you can't tell, this man is a mess. The Bible's telling us that he's a prophet of Yahweh, and yet the first words out of his mouth in this whole story are, God, kill me. Kill me, please. Does that sound like the kind of guy who's leading a church that you want to be a part of or who's leading a worship night that you want to participate in? I don't think so. That doesn't mean Elijah's a bad guy, but this is an example of how low he has gone in his life. He is hopeless. Even Christian people can become hopeless if they spend all of their time looking at their circumstances instead of spending time with God to be renewed. Elijah is running for his life from an evil queen, which, just based on the number of Disney movies that I've seen, is a, not a good thing, not a place that you want to be, right? When an evil queen's out to get you, you got to go, you got to leave. A lot has gone wrong for him in the previous seven days. And as I said before, if you haven't read 1 Kings 18, read it, because it seems like Elijah should be on an emotional high. It seems like he should be riding up on a mountaintop and going, look what we were able to do. We took down the prophets of Baal, now Jezebel and Ahab. Everybody can tell that they're liars, that they're false, just like we knew they were. He should be in this position where he's like seeing the triumph of Yahweh all around him. And, and yet, what does he say to God? Take my life. I'm no better than anybody before me. I've had enough. I can't do this anymore. I want out. Elijah's biggest problems are inside of himself. The mental stress, the emotional stress, the spiritual stress. And in that way, Elijah is a lot like you and I. You may not relate to the idea of an evil queen hunting you down. I think most of us probably never had that experience and never will. But you probably have had a couple of days where everything has gone wrong to the point that in your heart, if you were honest, you cry out to God and you say, what is the point? Why? Why am I here? What am I, why did I think I was going to be able to pull any of this off? Why would I have ever thought that my life would go any better than my parents or my grandparents or anybody who ever came before me? Just be done with me. Get rid of me. I'm through. I have nothing left to give. In that way, he is exactly like us. He's not abiding in God actively. He's not beholding God actively. And therefore, we shouldn't be surprised that he's not acting very much like God in this moment. He's embraced his own cowardice. He's finding his identity only in himself, and he's really out of, uh, out of gas, personally. He has nothing left to offer himself or anybody else. The two things that Elijah is dealing with that are stirring up chaos in his heart and mind are, first, he's out of touch with himself, and second, that he's haunted by the afterimage of other people. Elijah, in just a few verses, is going to share this monologue with God. And when you hear it, you, you might feel bad for him a little bit, but you're probably going to roll your eyes because you're going to go, really? Is it that bad for you? You have this chance to talk to God one-on-one, -on -one, and you still feel like everything's going wrong and there's no hope. We know that he's haunted by the afterimage of other people because it's the presence of Jezebel, it's the presence of Ahab, it's the weight of the Israelite people. Will they turn to God? Will they won't? That sort of crushed him down into this little crumpled version of himself. I don't know if you've ever had this experience before, but frequently, uh, especially in the wintertime, I'll be driving on the highway, and a big, like, lifted truck from the valley will drive up behind me with those, like, bright blue halogen headlights. You guys know what I'm talking about? And they hit you in the rearview mirror, 
and you're like, why does anybody need headlights that high up, you know? And so you're driving, you're trying to do your thing, you're in your normal car, and this big rumbling loud, it's got flags flying off the back, and it's blinding you through your rearview mirror. Well, even when that vehicle passes you 20 miles over the speed limit and roars down the highway to wherever they're going, even after they've left, you get those rings in your eyes. You know what I'm talking about? Or maybe when you were a kid, you would... This is hypothetical. I've never done this, I'm sure. But you would stare at the sun to see how long you could stare at the sun, right, before you went blind. When you look away, you have these floating rings in your eyes. That's what I mean when I say an after image. Spiritually, people have that impact on you. I don't know if you know that or not. When you spend time with anybody and then you're away by yourself, it's not instant solace. You don't just immediately unplug, close the bathroom door, and any mother of young children will tell you a bathroom door is a poor barrier to the presence of other people, right? They will find a way to let you know that they are still there and they still need you and you need to be focused on them. So it takes a little bit of time for that sense of other to go away, for us to really be able to feel like we're all the way alone. And for Elijah, he's got this stuff boiling inside of him, but he can't even name it. The only prayer he can throw out to God is a prayer that says, kill me. But he doesn't say why. He's not able to articulate what's going on under the surface for himself. And so he arrives at a place with God where he's got nothing left to give. He's literally running for his life. He is out of gas. He's very tired physically. He's hungry. He's thirsty. And he crashes and burns under this scraggly tree. If you've ever seen a broom bush tree, it doesn't provide a lot of shade. He didn't even pick a very good tree for a nap. That's how bad of a day he's having. And what does God do immediately? He puts him to sleep, wakes him up, feeds him some bread, which I can guarantee you if God made the bread, it's good bread, gave him some clean water to drink, and then puts him back to sleep again. And then we'll read in a few verses, wakes him back up again, feeds him again, and then finally begins to interact with Elijah. Elijah is out of gas. He's carrying the after image. He's not positive. He can't address his inner needs, and so he needs silence and solitude. Why? Because here's what those things do in our lives. Silence brings our subconscious inner monologues to the surface so we can deal with them. Being quiet gives you a chance to hear all of the chaos that's happening inside of your soul. Being around noise, you'll never do it. Constant podcasts, music, TV, other people, busyness, emails, ringtones, all of it. It keeps us from ever getting more than a couple of inches below the surface in our own selves. And so the stuff that's really driving and motivating us, the things that our fears are rooted in, the stuff that pushes us toward bad behavior, we don't ever deal with it. We don't look at it. We don't touch it because it's too scary. It's too big. And for many of us who've spent so much time, years, not looking at ourselves, it's intimidating to imagine taking the time to stop and look in the mirror for a second and address everything that we see there. But silence gives us room to hear our own inner voice and figure out, is it healthy or is it not, and then deal with it. Solitude allows that after image of human contact to fade. That's the great benefit of being alone, is eventually you begin to feel alone. Eventually, you stop sensing other people and what they need from you and how desperate they are for your attention or your time or your abilities, and you can just be you. And I'll argue with you, church, that if you don't make time for these two practices together, then you don't stand a very good chance of ever addressing what's going on inside your own heart and mind. You don't have a very good chance of ever actually being just yourself, uninfluenced and unstretched and unpulled thin by all the people and the things that need you. If you're not your true self and you don't really know what's going on inside of you, what is it that you're talking to God about? If you have a quiet time but it doesn't look like this, what is it? What is the substance of it? What is the meat of your time with God? Is it simply ingesting more information Is it going through the motions so that you can tell yourself, I did it, and even if I don't feel better, I should, or I can tell other people I did it so they'll get off my back? I don't know. But I can promise you that if you're not taking the time, it doesn't have to be every single day, but if you're not taking the time to do this kind of abiding practice, to be who you really are, 
and to look inside yourself and listen, you're probably not going to sense when God is leading you. You're probably not even asking the kinds of questions that would lead God to change your character, to impact you personally, to transform you and turn you into the kind of person that God wants you to be. So how does God provide these solutions for Elijah, and what expectations should you have if you engage in silence and solitude? Well, the first stage of the seven stages is rest. God knocked Elijah out, woke him up, fed him, watered him, knocked him out again. That's the first thing Elijah needed, was a meal, a drink, and a nap. And you and I are people who disassociate our physical selves from our mind and our spirit, and we lie and tell ourselves that hungry, tired, stressed out, angry me is the me that's going to make great decisions, and is going to really love other people, and is going to be selfless and kind. And I'll tell you what you can try. You can try as hard as you want, and you'll make it about 10 minutes in your life before you explode. And all of that stuff that you were carrying and trying to ignore comes to the surface and drives your actions for the rest of your day. For some of us, the most spiritual thing we could do in the short term is go to sleep. Turn off all the stuff that's distracting us, eat something healthy that wasn't deep fried 10 minutes ago, have some water instead of just black coffee all the time. I know some of you guys, I've met with you, you have coffee at dinner right before bed, you need some water once in a while, okay? But the point is this, refresh your body, allow yourself to plug in and be a human being the way God designed you and start there. If you can start there, then the other six stages that are present here that you are able to navigate if you'd like to, they stand a much higher chance of bearing fruit for you but we're so busy, we go so fast, we hype ourselves up, we stimulate ourselves to the point that it feels almost sinful, almost wicked for a Christian person to take a minute and eat something healthy, rest, and take a break. We tell ourselves that's selfishness, when in reality it's the way we were hardwired by God. God knew you'd need to go to bed, and he knew you'd need some good food and a drink of water once in a while. So start there. That's where he starts with Elijah. For many of us, this is a spiritual exercise because it requires a kind of humility that we don't have. We have to start, if we're abiding in Jesus' grace, by admitting to ourselves that God doesn't need us. That if I'm asleep, God's awake, and God will be present for my wife, present for my daughter, present for the church that I pastor, present for the elders whom I'm a part of, present for my parents who live 4,000 miles away, one of whom has a terminal illness. God will be present for those people. If I were to die today, God would go on living, and the people in my life who I love would be cared for by the God that I love now. A nap is an exercise in a short-term death, if you've never thought about it that way. It's you choosing to be dead to the world for just a little while. And then you wake up on the other side, and God was there all along, and everything is fine. But do we have the humility to accept that when we come into this desert place with God, desperate, driven to the end of ourselves, crying out, God, kill me, that instead of a knife, he might hand us a pillow and say, this is what you need, take a break. Take a breath, go to sleep. I'll be here when you wake up and we'll talk about where we go from here. So what happens next? After Elijah has had this nap, after he's abandoned his idols of productivity and success and busyness to the point that he can take a nap in God's name, look at verse seven. The angel of Yahweh came back again, touched him again and said, get up and eat again. Here's more food for you. You need to eat again for otherwise you won't be able to make the journey. What journey? Well, this brings us to the second stage, which is what I call the wall. Now, the wall is a term that I use a lot in spiritual life because it just simply articulates 
a barrier, some friction, some frustration, some resistance. And oftentimes, as Western Christians, whenever we encounter any kind of wall, we just turn around and go back the other way. We don't think about it. We don't ask anybody to help us get through it or go over it or go around it. We just go, oop, that's a barrier. I don't really want to deal with that. That's going to require me to deal with my past or confront my parents or change my parenting style or change my career. I could never do any of those things, so I'll just reroute and go do some other spiritual thing that feels better and fits into kind of my little kingdom that I'm running myself. In this case, what I mean by the wall is I mean that once we are rested, oftentimes in the quiet with God, he invites us on a journey with him, but it has no discernible destination. So it almost feels like a spiritual treadmill. The wall is this experience of continuing to walk forward as God says go, but you don't know how long you're going to be walking. You're not sure where you're going, and all you know is God said to do it. God does not tell Elijah where he's headed. The messenger of God doesn't say, Elijah, okay, here's the plan. All right, you're ready. You're rested. You ate. Here's what we're going to do. 40 days in the wilderness. I know it's going to be hard. You can do it. When you get to the mountain, there's this cave waiting on you. Go into it. There's going to be an earthquake, a tornado, and a fire. When that's done, God will speak to you. He'll give you the answer to your prayer, and then you can come back to the world and do whatever it is you need to do. Elijah gets none of that. He gets told, you took a nap. You ate. You took another nap. You ate again. Let's go. Where? I don't know where. With me, God says. So journey with me. Let's go. Elijah doesn't know at that point exactly what he's signing up for. And often, in the quiet with God, we crave a response from God right away. But instead of God saying, here's the future, here's my crystal ball, you can look into it, ask your three questions because I'm just a genie in a lamp, and then you can have your wishes and move on. Instead, God says, oh, you have some questions, you're stressed out, you've been having a hard time, you don't know where to go next, walk with me. And we go, oh, are you, Really? Can you just tell me? If I walk with you, I'm going to walk away from all these plates I have spinning and my world will fall apart because everybody needs me and and secretly I'm kind of God to myself and all the people and God's like, let it all go and just come with me. Just walk. Let's go. Let's go together. Let's just see where we get to. I've got all that. I've got you. You're with me. Let's go. And so Elijah takes that offer. He begins to walk through the desert and as he spends his time in that 40-day journey with God, Over time, slowly, he begins to realize some things about himself. Look at verse 8. Elijah did what God told him. He got up, he ate again, he drank again, and the meal gave him the strength so that he was able to travel for 40 days and 40 nights. You see, often when we come to God, we expect him to immediately answer our prayer with something very easy for us to understand, and we think that we probably already have the strength to do whatever it is he's calling us to do. We just need him to tell us where to go. What this verse tells me is that rest time with God, that initial stage before God brought Elijah to the wall was nourishment for him because God knew where he was gonna take Elijah. He knew what was on Elijah's horizon and Elijah couldn't have known that and so when God said rest and eat and drink and rest and eat and drink, God was giving to Elijah what he needed for God to take Elijah to a place that he had never been before. He traveled 40 days and 40 nights and eventually he reached Oreb, which you may know as Mount Sinai. It's the famous mountain where Uh, God met Moses initially. It's also the mountain where God brought Moses and the Israelites back in the Exodus to give them the Ten Commandments. It's a mountain that God continually brings his people to again and again in the Old Testament to deal with them and to meet with them. Elijah knows that. He can see the mountain way off in the desert. He probably knows roughly where he's headed, but he isn't sure until the 40 days end and he and God arrive there at the mountainside together. When he gets there, Elijah is prepared to say something about himself that he hasn't been able to articulate yet. So this point, this stage of silence and solitude is almost kind of inferred, but if you would study this passage closely, I think you'd see that it's pretty obvious what's happening in Elijah's life. As he spends time at the wall with God, as he spends time in this 40-day journey where God doesn't speak again, 
God simply says, go with me, leads Elijah, and Elijah goes, trusting that whatever's going on with God is somehow going to affect all the problems that are still looming behind Elijah. These assassins that are chasing him down in the name of Queen Jezebel, they're still coming for him. And yet he follows God step by step through the desert. And as he goes, we realize very soon that he has reached the third stage of silence and solitude. He has begun sensing his inner reality. You remember one of the problems that we have, why we need silence is because we have this inner monologue that's constantly moving under the surface, but we can't really sense it on our own. We don't know what kinds of ideas or, or even things that we feel may be true about ourselves. We're constantly recycling in our own minds the way that we think we look, how successful we think we are, whether people like us, if we're funny, if we're awkward. This stuff just kind of cycles. It cycles like a hamster on the wheel. We don't have to tell it to run. It just goes, and it influences our self-esteem. It influences the way we carry ourselves as Christians. It influences how deeply rooted our shame or our fear are, which often drive the way that we interact with other people. Elijah, in this 40-day period with God, this journey without a clear destination, he has to think about something. And in the quiet, by himself, slowly and steadily, he begins to realize some things are true about himself. We know this because then he's able to say to God what his inner reality is, which is the fourth stage. He senses it on his own, And then he's willing to name it. So I want to keep reading for you here in verse 9. Elijah went into a cave, this is at Mount Horeb, and he spent the night there. He rests again. And suddenly Yahweh's message came to him and asked him a question. He said, why are you here, Elijah? Elijah answered him and said, I have been absolutely loyal to Yahweh, who is the God of heaven's armies. Even though the Israelites have abandoned the covenant that they made with you, even though they have torn down your altars, even though they have killed your prophets with the sword, I alone am left, and now they want to take my life. That's a very different prayer than, God, I have had enough, kill me. Something has happened in this 41 to 42-day period of Elijah's life, this time spent walking in the desert. He is realizing what's going on inside of himself. Why is he upset? What is he afraid of? What has happened to him that even though it's been now over a month since it happened, is still haunting him? This after image of these other people and what they want and what they've done and how it's going to affect him that's churning up this chaos inside of himself. He senses it, and then finally he is able to name it. Now Elijah has something to say. What a familiar emotional spectrum, at least for me. I can speak for myself. This is a prayer that I've prayed many times, very similar to what Elijah has said. I have said to God, God, I am doing everything that I can think of right now. Have you ever prayed a prayer like that before? You just thought that. You come to God again in your quiet time in the morning and you're going, what else is there? You show up to a church service like this where somebody tries to tell you, there's more, there's more you can do, there's more steps you can take, and you roll your eyes and you go, what have I not done, God, for you? What is this about my life that's not enough, that someone feels like they have to pile more onto my shoulders? I've prayed many times to God, God, I feel like I am getting everything done for your kingdom that I possibly could, and I'm even doing most of it the right way. Though many other church leaders that I know don't. Many other church leaders take shortcuts and manipulate people and abuse people to get what they want. And I'm sure it would be a lot easier to do that, to be a manipulator, than to do things the right way and no one would ever know the difference. All around me, God, I see people compromising. This is Elijah's prayer. The Israelites have abandoned you, God. My people are no longer your people. And that means I'm alone. I see people who say they love you and they surrender to what they want instead of you. They surrender to how they feel instead of you. And I feel like I'm the only person left who really cares about you and what you want. 
and now. Now those same people, they're not content to go off the deep end on their own. Now they're coming for me, Elijah says. People are now demanding that I compromise. They're demanding that I explain myself to them. They're demanding that I take their position on how old the earth is or if the rapture is real or if Christians can cuss and still be Christians. And it's wearing me out, God. I don't even know if these things matter to you and we're spending all this time bickering and everybody wants to drag me into their fight and I have nothing left to give and I don't know where to go. That's a much more mature and robust and functional prayer than, God, I can't do it anymore, kill me. The time that Elijah has taken to look inside himself and get to know what's really going on makes him able to speak the truest possible prayer to God about who he is. For many of us, naming our inner reality will look like admitting to God, I am angry, even though I'm trying to act like I'm not angry. God, I am tired, even though I don't think I have a good reason to be. I feel guilty about being tired, a normal human experience. I feel guilty. I load my body up with more caffeine than it could possibly handle because I feel so guilty about how tired I am all the time. I'm upset with other people that I'm supposed to love. I feel betrayed. I feel misunderstood. I feel somehow unfairly idolized by certain people all at the same time, and I don't know what to do with any of it. That is a more honest and a more complex prayer than I can't take it anymore, God. Just end it for me. Elijah finally knows what is going on inside of himself. Silence and solitude have begun to do their work in him. The afterimage of other people is fading. His inner monologue is rising to the surface and he begins to deal with these thoughts that have been churning in him, these feelings that have been churning in him. And then he names them. He doesn't go the way of the world and simply try to address these issues on his own with worldly wisdom. He brings them to the living God. And he says, God, I know that you already know this about me, but I'm just finding out for the first time what's been going on in me under the surface, and I can't fix it. I don't have the tools. I don't know anybody who cares enough to get all the way in the mud of my mess with me. So I'm here with you, and I'm telling you the truth. I don't have excuses. I know it's not the right way to be or feel or whatever, but it's what I am right now, and I'm giving it to you. Now watch what happens next. For the first time in 43 days, God will answer Elijah directly and not in the way that Elijah expects. Verse 11. Yahweh said to Elijah, go out and stand on the mountain before Yahweh and look because Yahweh is ready to pass by. So a very powerful wind went before Yahweh and it dug into the mountain and it caused landslides. But Yahweh was not in the wind. And after the windstorm, there was an earthquake, but Yahweh was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, there was a fire, but Yahweh was not in the fire. Then after the fire, there was a soft whisper. When Elijah heard it, he covered up his face with his robe, and he went out and he stood at the entrance to the cave. And once again, a voice asked him, this is the exact same question God asked him in verse 9, why are you here, Elijah? Verse 14, Elijah answered and said the exact same answer. I'm gonna explain this to you in a second, but just look at how precise the Bible is and the way it tells you the story. He says again, I have been absolutely loyal to Yahweh, the God of heaven's armies, even though the Israelites have abandoned the covenant that they made with you, even though they've torn down your altars, they've killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and now they want to take my life. Elijah moves from naming his own inner reality. He speaks a prayer of honesty about what's going on inside of himself to God and begins the most important, the critical climax of silence and solitude. He begins to dialogue with God. 
Church, I have prayed probably a million hours in my life. It has only been in the last few years that I have learned to listen in my prayers. Have you ever felt this truth? There's a song that I love from when I was in high school. I can't remember the name of it, but the girl sings, I've tried to hear from heaven, but I talked the whole time. Is that your prayer experience? You just keep talking to God and talking to God and talking to God and talking to God and hoping that maybe eventually you'll say the magic spell that will crack heaven wide open and you'll see God on his throne and the Holy Spirit will come like a dove and suddenly your problems will all go away. And we just talk and we talk and we talk and we talk and we talk and then at the end we go, oh, I guess nothing's gonna happen and we run right back into our chaos. And we never listen. We don't stop. We don't really think anything would happen. We're not even sure anybody would say anything if we would listen. Or we're so spooked out by the idea of prayer being a two-way conversation that we're scared to death that we'd somehow manufacture some kind of fake response from God so we don't listen at all because what if that happened and what would happen to us? God's probably strong enough that that's not gonna happen to you. God can speak when somebody's listening. He'll speak all the time when we're not as well. That's the point that he's making to Elijah is you don't need me to bring an earthquake to Jezebel's front door. You don't need a tornado to rip up Jerusalem by the roots and throw it into the sea to solve your problems. You don't need me to burn down the prophets of Baal and their sacrifice. I did it a couple of days ago and your problems are still your problems. You need to hear from me and you need to hear from me in a way that you'll never hear unless you're right next to me where I am. It's the proximity of God in this fifth stage that is so profound to me about this story. You can't hear a whisper unless you're right next to the person who's whispering. The New Revised Standard Version translates what this translation of the Bible calls a quiet whisper as sheer silence. The kind of silence that's so heavy that you can almost feel it. So let me ask you a question. Did God answer Elijah's prayer? Elijah throws all of these things at God. I'm angry, I'm nervous, I'm scared. People hate me, people hate you. There's no hope. Did God answer Elijah's prayer? I would argue Yes, yes, he did, but he didn't answer it with words. And that's definitely what Elijah would have preferred, is if God had answered him with words. Instead, God answered him with presence, because God knew that Elijah didn't really need answers. Elijah needed to belong to God and to behold him, that that was the solution to every inner problem that Elijah had. He didn't need an explanation. An explanation of the logic behind God's plan would have offered him very little comfort because Elijah is a child and God is his father. So I'll ask you this question, church. What does an upset child need from a loving father? Do they need a handbook or do they need a hug? Do you know what I'm saying to you? Does a child need to be explained the logic, the reasons that everything will be okay and therefore actually there's not really any good excuse for how upset they are in the first place or do they need to be brought close and held tightly? That's all they need. They need someone stronger, bigger, more loving to be present and say, I've got you. And all of that out there, we'll deal with it. But I've got you in such a way that your life is worth living. Elijah has lost his suicidal prayer. He's arrived at a place where he's throwing his circumstances at God, and now he's listening, and he's waiting. And in the quiet, without any words at all, he senses the presence of God. He sees God. Literally, even with his robe wrapped around his face, he knows God is right there with him, listening and taking part in what God is dealing with. God did not ignore Elijah's pain. He didn't ignore his fear. He answered those things with himself. He came in that silence in a way that made his holiness obvious to Elijah. Dialogue with God is the climax of silence and solitude. It is the belonging. It is the beholding that we desperately need. 
This total quiet place is where Elijah finally found what he was looking for, even though he didn't know. He found God himself, and he was enraptured. And fully belonging to God in that moment, with no one else to be with, nothing else to distract him, he beheld God in a way that led to the sixth stage of his journey into silence and solitude, which is transformation. As he was in that place with God, speaking with God, being his honest, truest self, not ignoring or running from his circumstances or how he felt or what he thought, he was changed by being with God. The paradigm works. When you belong to Jesus and you behold him, you will become like him. He will change you. But if your plan for discipleship is to change yourself, you're not going anywhere. It will not work for you. You're not going to make any progress. I mean, Jesus said it himself. He's the vine. We're the branches. He said, without me, you'll do nothing. Not most things or a few things or just one thing that will matter. He said, without me, none of this is important. You're not going to do a single thing I've ever told you to do. You won't change the world. You won't share the gospel. You won't represent me. Your churches will just be social clubs. None of it's going to work. You have to abide. And it takes Elijah 43 days, two naps, two meals, and a long walk through the desert to realize all he needed from the beginning was to sit down where he was and acknowledge the presence of God to be together. That's the point of this story. And that's where the transformation begins for Elijah. In verse 13, God asks Elijah the exact same question. Why are you here? In verse 14, Elijah gives the exact same answer. He doesn't change a word of his response to God after the earthquake and the fire and the whirlwind. He simply restates his perspective, restates his circumstances, believing and hoping that something will be different based on his interaction with God. Not that his circumstances will have changed, because they don't. If you read the rest of the story, the rest of chapter 19, where Elijah meets Elisha and hands off his mantle, Elijah is hunted till the day he goes to heaven. He doesn't actually die. He gets in this fiery chariot and goes into heaven, and it's a really cool story. But he's hunted all the way to that point. His problems don't change. Ahab stays the king. Jezebel stays the, the queen. The Israelites don't turn their hearts back to God. But something within Elijah has shifted such that he can say the same prayer with a different set of expectations. The point is that Elijah is now a new man after being alone with God. He answered the same way because his inner reality was the same. The people around him are still unfaithful. The Israelites are still pitted against God. The enemies of God are still in power. But now, from Elijah's perspective, these problems belong to God, not Elijah. They are God's to solve, not Elijah's problems to solve. Now they are not the justification for Elijah's prayer of suicide, but they become the threads in Yahweh's hands with which he will weave the next chapter of Elijah's life with God. And so you can't really tell in English, but the way it's written in its original language, the second time that Elijah answers God's question, he's not accusatory anymore. He's not angry. He's not upset. He's preparing for something new. He's handing God his circumstances and saying, these are not all the reasons why I think you should kill me, but this is what's going on in my life, and I'm gonna need you to be who you've been with me here in this quiet place when I go back to the circumstances that await me. He's not afraid anymore. He's been into the inner sanctum with God, and there he found what he needed all along, not ancient mysteries revealed, not answers to the world's greatest questions. No, he found Yahweh. He found God the Father, and he was changed, renewed, grounded, calmed, settled, reassured, loved, held close by God. As he belonged to God, body and soul, as he beheld God, he became like God, he was transformed. And what did God do with this new transformed Elijah? God sent him right back into the circumstances that he came from. Let's wrap up our time here with verse 15. So Yahweh said to him, go back the way you came and then head for the wilderness of Damascus 
Go there and anoint Hazael and make him the king over Syria. A few verses later, Elijah went from there and he found Elisha, son of Shaphat. He was plowing with 12 pairs of oxen. He was near the 12th pair and Elijah passed by him and threw the robe over him. The seventh and final stage of silence and solitude is coming back changed. You go back. You don't achieve enlightenment. You don't live out your days in nirvana. You don't pray for three hours in the basement and then come back upstairs and all of your children are perfectly obedient again. No, you re-enter the chaos that you left, but you are different. You regain the capacity to live the life you have by being with God. It's the only way. No parenting strategy, no schedule, no plan with your spouse or your friends or any podcast you've listened to or any book that you've read can renew you. But God will renew you. But you have to be with him. You've got to find out a way to carve out time to be together with him. The discipline of silence and solitude did for Elijah what it can do for us. It can create the margin that we need so that we can hear from God. Silence and solitude can be summed up as the spiritual discipline of making room to hear God. That's what we're doing. We're making room to abide. We're making room to behold. It's a way that we can cooperate with God to be prepared for obedience that is born out of love, not compulsion, fear, guilt, shame. It reacquaints us with ourselves, but then it pulls us out of the gravitational orbit of all the other people in our lives, and it leaves us alone, our true self, with Jesus. And there in the quiet with Jesus, you know what you can't do? You can't perform. You can't achieve, you can't succeed, you can't advance your agenda, you can't make any progress on anything that anybody will ever see. There's really nothing to do. You can neither be quiet enough to impress Jesus, you can not be alone enough to prove your love to him. When you are quiet, when you are alone, you can only be who you really are. And when you do it with Jesus, you stand the greatest possible chance of changing. Because who you are is a person who needs grace and mercy desperately. Who you are is a person who has nothing to offer God on your own. Who you are is a person who should never be able to be in the presence of God for extended periods of time based on your own rebellion and wickedness, but it's the mercy and grace of Jesus that opens the way for you to know God personally, to be with him, to spend as much time as possible in his presence. I'll just tell you that Elijah is not the only minister of God who can get a little dramatic on an empty stomach and after an all-nighter, okay? I know what this is like to bring some things to God that are, that are maybe just me being overwhelmed and needing to shift gears and rest and be and listen. So I try to belong in the quiet when I exercise silence and solitude. I try to just be there with Jesus. Nothing to do, nowhere to be, no progress to make or steps to take, just me as I really am, exposed and uncomfortable, and if I can be honest with you, most of the time, not really sure if it's working or not. But I'm there with God. And the miracle of it is, if it's two minutes or two hours or a weekend away, whatever you have time and margin to, to carve out to do this, when you come back, you'll be different. You won't feel that different, but the people around you will be able to sense that you have been with God, that he has interacted with you, that he's begun to change you, that he's begun to move you, and he will do that. At some point, most of us become so self-focused that we can't imagine spending time with Jesus, and so I would just encourage you to start small. Maybe it's a minute, maybe it's two minutes. Try to find a time and a place in your day where you can step away and be alone with God, and then simply be. Don't have an agenda, turn your phone over, watching this seconds tick isn't gonna help your anxiety, okay? Just let it sit. Wait for the alarm to tell you that the time is up and just sit and see what happens. And if it's nothing more than this, at the bare minimum, what it will be is an exercise in your own blessed futility. 
you will remember and understand that nobody needs you as bad as you think they do or you wish they would. And that God who is God remains and that you with him is the point. It's all that eternity will be. It's all the Garden of Eden ever was before we sinned. It's where we're headed. It's where we come from. And we have a chance to be there with God now. So that's what's on offer for you today. This is not something you have to do. If you never practice silence and solitude, one minute between now and eternity, God will love you the same and he'll welcome you right into eternity with him. But you have a chance to participate in and experience a glimpse of that eternity right now. It just takes a little bit of effort to get away and to get quiet and to be with God. So I wanna pray that God would inspire you to maybe take that step and to go deeper in your personal relationship with him through silence and solitude. Let's pray together. Father, we love you. And uh, if we don't, we're sure trying our hardest, God, to find a way maybe to regain the motivation that we remember having a while ago. Uh, Maybe as children who were saved at a VBS, maybe as youth who were saved at a camp or a revival, God, maybe as adults who hit a point of crisis and cried out to you, and then because you're good, things got better, and it's just been a while since we've really been with you. Challenge, God, our perspective on this sort of transactional salvation that we live challenge the idea that we made a decision once a long time ago and that was it once and for all and now there's nothing left to do until we get to heaven and then for some reason in heaven I guess we think that we'll love to be with you even though we don't care to do it that much now challenge that disrupt that shake it up God help us to look around us and see the ingredients in healthy human relationships and then ask ourselves why would we think that anything less than that would be worthwhile between us and you I pray God that you give us the simple desire to know you the joy that comes from getting to know you, a love for your character, a love for your presence, a love for experiencing you in the way that you work, and that you would teach us, God, to go against the grain of our world, our society, and our own selves, and to step away regularly, to be alone, and to be quiet, to be with you. We trust you, God, and we thank you for grace and mercy that forgive us in every area and mean that we never have to question our standing in your eyes. And I pray, God, that we would learn to act on that grace and step further and further into your presence. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.